I've made no secret that my favourite Star Trek captain is James T. Kirk. The real Kirk, not the general public's perception of Kirk, is a learned man, well-read, a student of military history and tactics, and a compassionate but firm commander. Kirk's reputation as a hot-headed ladies' man is the fabrication of years of mischaracterization and confusion between the character and his alter ego, actor William Shatner. Certainly it's often difficult to tell where Shatner ends and Kirk begins, but that's more of a wish-fulfillment on Shatner's side than Kirk's. Kirk liked the ladies, that much is certain, but he was never portrayed as a James Bond stereotype of having a lady in every port. The relationships he had in the original Star Trek were mostly based upon a connection more than just physical, and he was horrified at the thought of a subordinate being a former lover in Dagger of the Mind. His love interests, Miramani in The Paradise Syndrome and Edith Keeler in City on the Edge of Forever, were relationships of equals. Even his relationship with Carol Marcus in The Wrath of Khan, a relationship that spawned a son, was dictated by her desires and wants. Kirk wasn't an absent father by choice. Carol asked him to stay away. He also has an unwanted reputation as a warmonger, despite there being numerous occasions in the original series where Kirk actively avoided a scenario that would have ended in conflict. Only in Errand of Mercy is he seen to argue for war, and that situation was a potential catastrophe waiting to happen. In other episodes, Kirk bluffs his way out of conflict, the Corbomite manoeuvre, reasons his way out of conflict, mirror mirror, or surrenders for the greater good, the undiscovered country. He's an inspirational commander with a ready wit and a keen way with words. His speeches are the stuff of legend. However, more than this, Kirk was a flesh and blood character. He had doubts. Witness his sincere conversations with Dr. McCoy in both Balance of Terror and The Ultimate Computer, where Kirk shows his concerns for his ability to command, and The Enemy Within, where he is forced to confront the idea that even a civilised and compassionate man needs a savage side to be an effective commander. For 25 years we watched Kirk and his crew grow, develop, change. Kirk went from being the studly young buck to a man in middle age, concerned about death and ageing. He was pissy about losing his value in the motion picture, forced to confront death head-on in The Wrath of Khan, learned of second chances in The Search for Spock, and tried to recapture his lost youth in The Voyage Home, where, crucially, he didn't get the girl, and The Final Frontier, where he desperately tried to prove his vitality by taking stupid risks. In the undiscovered country, he seems bitter and, for the first time, truly old. Only by embracing change, acknowledging that time passes and that we can either accept that and move with it or try to resist and become obsolete, does he achieve a measure of peace as he moves into his twilight years. Many of us, including, I'm sure, William Shatner, would have liked Kirk to continue in some way. There was certainly scope for at least 
two more movies with the original crew. However, Paramount Pictures had other ideas. In 1994's Star Trek Generations, Captain James T. Kirk was rather unceremonially killed off in as dismissive a way as possible, crushed under a bridge, after retiring to an unlikely fantasy life that bore no resemblance to what Kirk would have wanted and everything that Shatner would have liked. Whatever you think of Generations, and it did give us the gag bridge on the captain, so that's one good thing about it, few believe that this was a worthy send-off for Captain Kirk. Enter William Shatner. Shatner had been quite vocal about not really wanting Kirk to die in Generations, for he had other ideas for the character. Only a handful of actors have embraced the fictional alter egos in the way Shatner has, and this is where that blurring of the lines I mentioned earlier comes from. Shatner never truly understood Star Trek's appeal. To him, it was a job. A good job. A fun job. A job that gave him career satisfaction and a steady paycheck. But a job, nevertheless. Rather, though, than be identified with Kirk in a negative way, Shatner chose to embrace Kirk. He came up with the storyline and directed Star Trek V after lobbying to direct the original show in 1969. Shatner has had a fractious relationship with his co-stars over the years, but even noted Shatner detractor Jimmy Doohan, the actor behind Scotty, has stated that Leonard Nimoy cared about Leonard Nimoy. Shatner cared about the show. To that end, Shatner had pitched a Star Trek VII after The Undiscovered Country, which would pick up after Kirk left Starfleet, but Paramount rejected his ideas. Undaunted, Shatner turned to Pocketbook's editor Kevin Ryan. Ryan was in charge of Pocket's then-lucrative Star Trek book line, and both men felt that a novel authored by Shatner would be a bestseller. To help Shatner, Ryan turned to Garfield and Judith Reeves Stevens, authors of a number of fan-favourite Star Trek novels like Federation and Prime Directive. The Reeves Stevens signed on after meeting Shatner and being intrigued by both his enthusiasm and the story idea. That story idea became the best-selling novel, The Ashes of Eden. There have been a number of people over the years querying exactly how much Shatner wrote of this novel, and, having read Federation and Prime Directive, I'm pretty confident in saying that the legwork was done by the Reeves Stevens. It reads like one of the books. But that's not to say Shatner's voice doesn't come through. Witness this extract from page 39 of the paperback. In this scene, Kirk has walked into the Great Hall, a lecture theatre at Starfleet headquarters, and he's mulling over the fame that being commander of the Enterprise has given him. That's Kirk of the Enterprise, they'd say. They'd buy him a drink. What was Ilan of Troyus really like? What sort of manoeuvres did that Romulan vessel make out by the neutral zone? The questions were unending, and at its earliest stage, he was flattered. But then his recognition had moved beyond the fleet. Civilians started approaching him, asking the same questions, seeking more details. Always details. After the incident with Vija, the floodgates had opened. All Earth claimed to know him. Most of the other worlds, too. Now Kirk couldn't go anywhere without detecting the unsettling flash of recognition in a stranger's eyes. All the more intense because, unlike the sudden recognition awarded a new sports star or politician, people had come to recognise him over decades of his career. 
He was filed away in their brains with other long-term acquaintances, the same memory slots given over to family members and lifelong friends. So that's how they approached him now. People like the young technician who had grown up seeing his face in the news updates, reading of his adventures, his job. They felt they all knew about him. He was their friend, their uncle, their inspiration. Kirk would be the first to admit he was in their debt. By their support of Starfleet and the Federation, they made what he had done possible, and for that he would always be grateful. But the truth was, to Kirk, they were still no more than strangers. After the millionth question had been asked about Ilan, after the millionth question about some Romulan commander, his reticence at appearing in public had little to do with the fact that he could think of nothing new to say. It was more the feeling that there was nothing lonelier than a man with a million friends. For how could he ever return that true yet false debt of friendship? It was a no-win situation, and Kirk had learned painfully that the best way to deal with those was to avoid them at all costs even if it meant that some of those strangers who once thought of him as friend now thought of him as enemy. He had first paid that price long ago, and knew he would continue to pay it for as long as people knew him, or thought they did. The subtext in that extract, which rapidly became text, is clearly Shatner's feelings on fame and Star Trek fandom. These moments permeate the book, which has a storyline that features all of Shatner's obsessions. The central theme of the book is the idea that if Kirk stops moving, stops learning, stops doing different things, he'll become obsolete. This is a notion that has also been applied to Shatner. Shatner's pet themes of old age, dying and retaining your vitality and youth are also in evidence. In fact, the storyline isn't that far removed from the Next Generation movie, Insurrection. Following the events of the undiscovered country, the crew have gone their separate ways. Spock is leaving Starfleet to become an ambassador and try to reunify his people with the Romulans. McCoy is staying in Starfleet to ensure that the next generation of holographic doctors and sterile sick bays still have the human touch. Sulu is off in command of the Excelsior, and Uhura and Chekhov have quit to become mercenaries and thieves. Yeah, I didn't buy that either. Turns out they are undercover, and their discoveries will kick the plot into high gear, as well as providing some conflict between Chekhov and Sulu that I also didn't buy for one second. The new head of Starfleet is Andrevar Drake, an old classmate and colleague of Kirk's. They served aboard the USS Farragut, in a reference to the original series episode Obsession. Kirk doesn't like Drake. Drake's promotion plays into Kirk's decision to leave, his feeling that if Drake is the kind of person Starfleet wants as head of operations, then he, Kirk, is better off gone. Drake is portrayed in the opening section of the novel as a man who enjoys telling Kirk his lover, one of many, has died. This is but a simulation, a holodeck recreation of one of Kirk's adventures, given 3D life as an educational learning opportunity. The opening chapter centres on Spock excavating Kirk's grave from Viridian 3 from the end of Generations, and the whole story is told in flashback, although in DC Comics adaptation, this wraparound sequence is omitted. Kirk is back, feeling useless and old. The Enterprise is to be decommissioned, and Drake delights in telling Kirk it will be used in war games, Drake taking great joy in Kirk's misery, as he did on the Farragut. Without a ship, Kirk is essentially back where he was at the beginning of Star Trek The Motion Picture, and this could all feel a little samey if the beats were exactly the same. Fortunately, they aren't. Here, Kirk doesn't want the Enterprise back. He feels that Starfleet has offered him everything it can, and he wants new challenges. He just doesn't know what those challenges are. 
At Drake's promotion party, he meets Telani, a young and attractive Klingon-Romulan hybrid. She's barely 20 years old, but this doesn't prevent Kirk from immediately taking a fancy to her. This is after he's been unable to perform sexually with poor Carol Marcus, who kicks him to the curb shortly after. This was the first inclination that this wasn't going to be the Kirk as Superman novel I was expecting. It was quite a shock to read about virile super stud James T. Kirk having sexual problems. Dr. McCoy lets Kirk have it with both barrels when he clocks him checking out Teilani, calling him a cradle snatcher and asking if he's deliberately trying to wind up the Klingons. After all, she must be someone's daughter. Needless to say, a later attack on Teilani causes Kirk to go all macho on her attackers, but even here Shatner avoids the obvious. Kirk struggles, his bones ache, his body doesn't react as quickly as it used to, but despite this, he feels alive. He feels more alive when Teilani takes him to bed. Interestingly, this sex scene, such as it is, has Kirk recall his conquests, mainly from the original series. And whilst Miramani, Marlena Moreau, Shana, O'Donna, Dila and Kalinda all get a mention, Edith Keeler, Laurie Chiana, his wife from the Star Trek The Motion Picture novel, and the much-derided Antonia from Star Trek Generations do not. Another element Shatner has long favoured is a falling out between the main cast of characters. He wanted Kirk to fall out with Spock and McCoy in Star Trek V, but both Leonard Nimoy and DeForest Kelly argued that the script didn't really give them a compelling reason to do so. Here, he has both McCoy and Spock basically tell Kirk he's been a jackass. His weakness for a pretty face and a fur figure seem to be blinding him to the fact Telani is using him. Again, Kirk's flaws are being highlighted, especially when he sees no problem with this. He wants to be used. Kirk walks away from his friends, despite them being clearly correct in what they tell him, and he leaves for Teilani's planet Chow. This is the book's midpoint, and the place where the actual plot kicks in. Remember I mentioned earlier that Chekhov and Uhura's investigations will kick off the plot? It's revealed that they are investigating a Klingon superweapon, the Chalche Kome. And if you think that the naming similarity to the planet Kirk has gone to is a coincidence, you've not read enough Star Trek fiction. Sulu, Chekhov and Uhura take their findings to Drake, who is meeting with Spock and McCoy about this very subject. Shatner lays it on thick that Drake is the bad guy. So much so that you have to wonder why the rest of the crew don't pick up on it straight away. He's cagey, secretive, and his office is decorated with paraphernalia from many planets' dark past. Colonel Green's conquests, the massacre of Tarsus IV, the drug fueled combat armour of the 21st century uprisings, that kind of thing. He falls short of having Nazi flags draped everywhere, but perhaps even for Shatner that could be labelled slightly unsubtle. As I say, the actual plot isn't that good. We've seen all-powerful superweapons before. We've seen scientific advancements that can be used as horrific weapons of war before. And we've done the Fountain of Youth plot before. Andrevar Drake is yet another mad Starfleet Admiral following the same bigoted cause of Admiral Cartwright in Star Trek VI, a Starfleet for humans rhetoric that doesn't really work in Star Trek, unless it's a story set in the past. Piggybacking it on the fall of the Klingon Empire from the undiscovered country makes it work, largely because the heavy lifting has been done by others. Shatner also lays the hero worship Chekhov has for Kirk on with a trowel. Chekhov doesn't like Drake from the get-go simply because Kirk told him about him. 
Chekhov also mistrusts Sulu for no discernible reason, likening him to a risk-averse stooge in comparison with the maverick and oh-so-perfect James T. Kirk. To no one's surprise, well, to no one in the audience's surprise, the characters seem shocked, Kirk is implicated by Drake in an attempt to engage the Klingon Empire in a war with Starfleet, and that is why his command crew have been asked here to deal with it quietly. No one bothers to ask about Scotty. There's a good reason for that, which I'll come to later. Tilani has, meanwhile, met up with Kirk, and she has conveniently managed to secure the Enterprise as a ship for them. It's not in good shape after the battle at Kitima, and all the Federation's computer databases, weaponry and secure equipment has been stripped out. But the warp engines purr like a kitten, because Tailani has recruited Scotty to help out. Told you I'd get to him. I liked this development quite a lot. One of the things lost over the years with the constant concentration on the triumvirate is that Kirk and Scotty were good mates in the original series. They hung out together, went to bars together, hit clubs and strip joints together and generally had a nice friendship that was different to that Kirk had with Spock and McCoy. Scotty was who Kirk went out with to forget he was a captain. The guy you went out with to be a guy. Drink too much in dive bars, pick up girls and get laid and stuff Starfleet credit wafers down the G-strings of green women. Other than a few scenes, the shuttle pod sequence in the motion picture and the wee bout scene in Wrath of Khan, Scotty and Kirk didn't really hang out too much anymore. So it was nice to see Scotty here helping Kirk because he was his friend. Scotty tells Kirk that the Enterprise is flyable and in decent working order, but she's in no shape for a prolonged battle, as she has no phasers or photon torpedoes, rather some old Klingon disruptors picked up on the secondary market. After a while, though, Scotty starts to suspect that not all may be well. Shatner, or more likely the Reeve Stevens, remember the friendship of old, but even here Shatner's feelings come through, and there are many scenes with Scotty that carry the subtext of Shatner apologising to Doohan. Shatner and Doohan had many differences down the years. Unlike Takai, Nichols and Koenig, I'm not aware of any specific problems Doohan had with Shatner, although Doohan was the first of the Star Trek actors I can recall publicly dissing on Shatner in an interview in Starburst magazine around the release of Star Trek IV. Of all the many and varied problems the cast had with Shatner over the years, only Dee Kelly never spoke of them publicly. Whatever the issues, Shatner wrote a nice role for Scotty here, and had it been a film, it would have been interesting to see Doohan play it. I wonder if he ever got to read it. Scotty, like McCoy and Spock before him, berates Kirk for his actions, for being blind to what is going on, for losing himself to the pretty face and form of a girl two-thirds his age. Scotty lets Kirk have it with both barrels, and only stays because he's got nowhere else to go. When Kirk mentions how young he feels, his aches and pains seemingly abated due to Charles' rejuvenation qualities, Scotty pities him. We've had our day and lived well, he tells Kirk, but time has moved on. Again, it's the themes of the story that are better than the story itself. When is it time to acknowledge your day has passed? When do we accept age and move aside to let the next generation take over? Certainly Shatner has spent most of his later years fighting ageing, be it the increasingly luxuriant toupees, the alleged girdles, and scenes like that in Star Trek V of him free-climbing. Better I feel to accept ageing, 
accept and learn from the young, from what is happening, than to cling on to old ideas and outmoded thoughts. As I get older, I start to learn more from my kids than they are from me. The idea of gender, sexuality, what's important to them, and this is how I choose to remain young, just to not be closed off. Had Shatner aged gracefully, like, say, Harrison Ford, how, I wonder, would his career have been affected? Would he have been a character actor, like Peter Falk or a Sean Connery? Perhaps had he adopted Connery's attitude of only wearing a rug for his rules, he'd have been less open to ridicule. Had he done any of this, though, would he have become an icon? Like his alter ego, Kirk doesn't cover himself with glory here. He leaves a casual brush-off message for Carol, which is a dick move, and keeps excusing his behaviour with Teilani in his own head as being okay, because once someone is an adult, they're old enough to make adult decisions. Now, I'm not someone who has a problem with May-December romances. I have friends whose relationships are anything between a year and 16 years difference. I tend to think this is really none of our business. That being said, a 45-year age difference... Hmm... What makes this even remotely palatable in the novel is that Kurt knows this isn't ideal. That's why he keeps making these excuses to himself. He's deluding himself. McCoy's gags about being a cradle robber offset the discomfort as well. Telani, for her part, is portrayed as knowing exactly what she's doing, so the Reeve Stevens managed to avoid any unpleasantness there. Even Drake points this out when telling Sulu and company that Kirk has gone to Charl with Telani. No one seems to question that Drake has a lot of photos of Kirk with Telani. You know, like maybe Kirk's been followed or set up. Telani is a Romulan Klingon half-breed, and Charl is a mutually colonised planet from one of the rare times that the Klingons and the Romulans had a truce. What the weapon, the Chalchekame, loosely translated into English as the Children of Heaven, has to do with anything is as yet unknown. However, Starfleet doesn't know where Charl is, and as such, the Excelsior and her crew are to follow the Enterprise and ascertain what's going on. During the back and forth, it becomes apparent to Chekhov that Spock is misleading Drake. Spock isn't buying any of this guff. Which is good. Spock's far too smart for any of that. The character who betrayed Chekhov and Uhura at the beginning of the novel is revealed to be Drake's daughter, and there's implications that Drake was behind David Marcus using proto-matter in the Matrix of the Genesis planet, which is bollocks. Not everything has to be connected, but sadly, here we are. Drake's anger comes from Kirk having stopped the Federation Klingon war back in the series episode Errand of Mercy, an incident that led to the death of Drake's wife. Drake has thus manoeuvred himself into this position ever since, his anger at Kirk from the Academy reaching boiling point over the years. It's stretching credibility a tad to have Drake be responsible for David's death. It's at breaking point when the authors gratuitously tie it back into an old episode. Nevertheless, the novel speeds along. As the chapters tend to be short, I find myself thinking, eh, just one more chapter, and suddenly another 100 pages have gone by. As we get into the last third of the book, the action picks up. There are some neat character moments as Chekhov is forced to take McCoy and Spock undercover to try and find Kirk. A decent confrontation between Sulu on the Excelsior and Kirk on the Enterprise that services both characters, rather than making one out to be smarter than the other, and Kirk's realisation that he's been had and manipulated. However, it is his fallibility that leads Tilani to realise Kirk is only human. The battle scenes are well realised and similar, in a good way, to Star Trek 2 and 6. 
perhaps cannily. Shatner and the Reeves Stevens keep the characters separate for most of the story. Chekhov, Sulu, Uhura, Spock and McCoy are all on Excelsior, and Scotty is with Kirk. This leaves it to Spock to figure out and rationalise Drake's behaviour. Drake is pretty obviously the bad guy, of course, but Spock has to find a way of proving it. His observations of Drake's behaviour prove spot on, and this is one of the better written aspects of the novel. On its own, Drake doesn't do anything too obvious, but when Spock points out all the choices Drake has made, the cognitive effect is quite telling. Meanwhile, Kirk and Telani discover that she and her child brethren were all genetically developed from the bodies of Klingon, Romulan and human donors, and in the case of humans, it wasn't voluntary. This combination has staved off the ageing process. It is this that Drake wants, almost immortality. Chal implants can be used on humans to keep them young for longer. On the one hand, the genetic engineering part of the story is once again reminiscent of what has gone before. But on the other, it does kind of make sense that the Romulans and the Klingons would have genetic engineering programmes, just as humanity did with Khan. As such, though, it does feel like another step over the fan-wank divide. If these elements were isolated incidents, I could maybe go with it. But the conclusion not only has a reprise of the slingshot procedure to affect time travel, as in Star Trek IV and numerous TV episodes, but also the destruction of yet another Enterprise. The Ashes of Eden is not without flaws. Shatner's opinions on love are quite sappy, and he really comes across as a man obsessed with women and sex. His handling of Kirk almost borders on superhuman, but he will then pull back to reveal the man behind the legend, and it's easy to see how the two have become blurred. He doesn't really give McCoy and Uhura a lot to do, and McCoy in particular has a lot of the same old, same old lines he's had before. Chekhov and Sulu's disagreements and Chekhov's almost fawning appreciation of Kirk are too much to handle. The basic story is also rather pedestrian and almost cliched. Still, the character moments are well handled. Spock, in particularly, is well characterised throughout, and Kirk comes across as a man torn between his own aching body and his still active and capable mind. The continuity is a bit fan-porny, but there are a number of nice callbacks, from David Marcus's birth and Carol's decision to want to raise him alone, to this being an almost sequel to Star Trek VI, with the following up of the conspiracy threads in the movie providing a link to Admiral Drake. I have to assume that the fact this all links together so well is down to the Reeve Stevens, as in a notable moment in Star Trek V, Shatner didn't even remember that Kirk had a brother. It's also a really easy and pleasant read, and much better than the Star Trek VII we were given. Shatner's novels, all ten of them, would get progressively sillier as they went along, but I actually prefer this to Generations and wish we'd have seen it on screen. Granted, I'm sure once the actors had had their say, numerous changes to the characters would have taken place, and this may have either improved or detracted from the finished project. Certainly Nimoy had taken a certain amount of creative control with Star Trek IV and VI, and would probably not have been willing to give that up so Shatner could tell his story. Overall, though, The Ashes of Eden is an entertaining Star Trek adventure, and a better one than any of the subsequent films, with the exception of Star Trek Beyond. It focuses on character and the exploration of those characters, whilst also serving as a vehicle to ask questions about ageing and staying relevant. Kirk realised that he, and by extension Shatner, has achieved immortality. 
The Enterprise's exploits have been programmed into the training computers for cadets to study, and as such, Kirk will live in people's minds forever. Such is it with the cast of Star Trek. Those original episodes have been shown all over the world for the past 53 years, and it's probably not hard to imagine them still being shown somewhere for the next 47, going boldly where none have gone before. Forever young. Or, the moral of the story could be interpreted as shag a woman in your 20s when you're 60-something and it'll fix all of your problems. I'll be back after this. But you don't understand. There was the high school episode and the future episode where they had a daughter. Of course Milhouse is in-game. Yes, and Lisa is so fulfilled in all of those. In fact, there's that Christmas episode where she's so fulfilled by him that who is she calling? Nelson. You know why? Because they are endgame. It's almost stupid to even discuss it. This show has been going on for like so long that there's so many different future scenarios. It's like it's been 30 years. Yeah, it's true. That reminds me of Stella on her podcast, Backworld Oracle. She's had a pretty healthy run. How long do you think it will last? <laughs> Forever. Ooh, let's give Stella a call. Hello? Hey, Stella. Why are you guys using Skype? Don't you want a feed time? No. Hmm. Don and I were just talking about BTO and how long it's lasted. Remember when we were kids, you didn't think it would go very far? What? What are you talking about? Stella, how long are you going to do this show? Meh. Ten episodes a year. Would you come first? Ha! You won't make it that long! You're a girl! Yeah! And girls have cooties! Gee, you guys really were supportive back then. We made up for it! By doing what? Mansplaining? And casplaining. Ugh. Well, anyway. 2020 is going to be a milestone. We've got the 10th anniversary in December, and of course the 200th episode after that. What are you planning on doing? Call-in show for listeners will be scheduled in December, and the 200th is going to feature some very special guest reviewers. Hopefully. Ooh, I'll be sure to free my calendar. Not you. You're, no. Fly on with Backroll the Oracle in 2020. Our first email tonight is from Jack Bond. Hey Joe, what do you know? I just got back from Kokomo. <laughs> I wasn't really in Kokomo, I just threw that in for the rhyme. Really, I was driving through the Poconos, which I initially read as the uh, Pinocchio, Pinocchio's nose. And I was wondering how you can drive through Pinocchio's nose. But then I remembered that the Poconos was, was actually a, a place. Okay. Joe continues, you're the second British recording artist. I love that. I'm a recording artist. I've heard say he was compared to the bespectacled Joe 90. Joe Jackson took his stage name from it and from Snooper, who was then showing Joe Cool persona. I've only seen Joe 90 in the Super Marination sampler that was in the 80s movie package. It didn't compel me to find more. As it is, I've rented a DVD of The Secret Service to see what that was all about, and not yet any Joe 90, so maybe I'll check it out as I run out of other Jerry Anderson shows, possibly before Space Precinct, with Star Cops also before it. UFO is the earliest Anderson series I remember, six or seven years old, watching it early Saturday evening. 
The moon pilots diving down the laundry chute to get to their interceptors was a move we imitated on the schoolyard jungle gym. Renting the DVDs gave the excitement of seeing the vehicles, characters, costumes and action again, and the anticipation of applying my adult understanding to the story, which images were burned in my brain, such as Time Lash. I had to chase the original series of Doctor Who around the US for about 14 years, the 80s and some overhang on each side. I got to see at least a bit of each Doctor. My last move was in time to catch the shows last year before it disappeared from the local station and pretty much everywhere except occasional VHS and later DVD rentals. With those last four stories as my first impression of Sylvester McCoy, I was able to take him in remembrance of the Daleks and even in time of the Rani. One thing I would do would be to buy a Target novelisation at the bookstand to read on the trip out and back. Stories I hadn't yet seen, stories no one would ever see again, and sometimes stories I had seen but had a few questions about. Did you know that a company called Pinnacle had experimented a few years before Target with reprinting the novels for US markets? They had their own logo and David Mann paintings. The cover for The Day of the Daleks in particular is legendary and a joy to behold. Harlan Ellison wrote an introduction that was the same in each of their books, but I'm glad to have it in Day of the Daleks, and the thought that he wouldn't go all Terminator on something that might bear a resemblance to something he'd written. Yeah, Day of the Daleks is Terminator, isn't it? It was only uh, a while ago I actually realised that it was quite similar. John Byrne mentioned that if he'd ripped anything off for Days of Future Past, it was that episode of Doctor Who. Some of the stations would run Blake 7 before or after Doctor Who, but I only remember trying one episode and emphatically not being into it. I remember the crazy teleportation effect, but poor special effects wouldn't deter me, see, Doctor Who. Also, the Tomorrow People. Is there any awareness of the Tomorrow People over there? I wonder if it's higher over here, although only slightly above average. Paramount seems to have taken some interest in it after buying the original to show on Nickelodeon. They show in a 1990s reboot on MTV and a 20-teens one on the CW. I presume they'll start again in the 2030s. Yeah, the Tomorrow People's weird. It's a minor footnote in genre television history. The Tomorrow People was an ITV show that was allegedly supposed to be their attempt to, to do a Doctor Who. It was cheaper by a long shot than Doctor Who. In fact, it's one of those things that makes you realise how good Doctor Who actually was. Um, but yeah, they rebooted it in the 90s with some with an Australian lead, who at the time was was famous for being in Neighbours, which seemed to happen a lot. And yeah, again, the CW brought it back, didn't they? Which I, I don't understand. I don't understand why the Tomorrow people, other than being vaguely X-Many, and would give them a, a superhero show without actually licensing a superhero, but they'd have to license the Tomorrow people, wouldn't they? So it doesn't make any sense. Anyway, Jack continues, my older brother is the real Star Trek fan, and as younger brother did I give him grief about it as kids, this all the time that I was studying his concordance, blueprints and technical manuals, and reading the novels he bought. Until I looked it up, I didn't realise Blish was still doing episodes as the Star Wars novelisation came out. I thought my brother was adding to the libraries his allowance allowed. Git Corp, the folks who did the 44 years of the Fantastic Four DVD ROM, also did a Star Trek collection. All of the companies up to IDW get in the licence, except the two X-Men crossovers. The gold key issues are appalling. Horribly, gloriously appalling. If you ignore that it's supposed to be Star Trek, it's an OK 50 sci-fi comic for being put out in the late 60s. Speaking of comics, Battlestar Galactica would have been the first Walt Simonson I'd seen, although I wouldn't realise it for years, until a drawing of Volstagg the Voluminous triggered a visual memory of Jolly, who was large on TV but huge in Simonson's drawings. 
Simonson's art is often finished to look like a flat drawing, but is laid out with a consistent knowledge of the three-dimensional space they inhabit. I think this is what made the Cylon Mark III and its fighters so compelling, despite little about them tying to the series Cylons. As to comics adapting TV episodes, I don't know before then, but since then, Comico put out three Robotech titles, each dedicated to adapting a segment of that show. Well, I've taken up enough of your electrons, I'll spur you my thoughts on the Star Wars novel tie-ins and the latest movies, and send this off before you drop another episode, Jack. Thank you very much, Jack. Your email, as ever, was greatly appreciated. I'm always a big fan of people's emails. Uh, speaking of which, Nathaniel Wayne's emailed in again. Battlestar Procrastica. Hey there, Andy. Hey there, Nathaniel. On Battlestar. Oh, Battlestar. Up there with Blake Seven, Supernatural, and Avatar, The Last Airbender, on the list of things I'll probably enjoy if I ever get around to actually watching any of them. Though I'll confess my interest is more in the Revive series, because all TV special effects are rough for me to take seriously. I couldn't actually get into classic Doctor Who until I'd already fallen in love with the modern incarnation and was able to use that love to be more forgiving than I otherwise am. It was fascinating to hear how many parallels the Marvel comic had with the revived version of Galactica. I suspect Ron Moore wouldn't admit to cribbing from the comic if asked, but not because he's trying to hide his inspiration. You see, he'd have been 15 when the comic series started, and it wouldn't shock me at all if he read them, retained some key details, and then forgot that's where they'd come from when he did the revival. I've had that happen to me a few times when working on creative ideas and suddenly realised, oh wow, I practically ripped that off without noticing because the source didn't stick in my head, but the details did. It's like when people go online and ask, hey, does anyone remember a show from the 80s where X, Y and Z happened? Because I'm starting to think I imagine it and it's driving me nuts. Not much else to say, but I'll close this idle thought, the kind that if I was more committed to, I'd do as a video on the Council of Geeks YouTube channel, but I've got enough on my plate as it is. I wonder if anyone's tried to figure out who would win in a battle royale of evil robots. You know, Cylons versus Battle Droids versus Terminators versus Replicants versus Ultron versus Decepticons versus Stepford Wives versus Janet from The Good Place versus Cybermen versus Borg. And yes, I know technically those last two are cyborgs, but whatever. It's a pleasing notion. Anyway, great listening. As always, geekily yours, Nathaniel Wayne. I don't know. I'm sure that somebody somewhere must have come up with that idea of pitching those things against each other. Personally, I think the Daleks would wipe them all out. That's just my opinion, though. <laughs> Certainly the Cylons couldn't shoot straight. Daleks exterminated people uh, left, right and centre, didn't they? Our final email tonight is from Chris and Cindy Franklin, which I'm pretty sure is just Chris. Hey, Andy. Long time no right, but that doesn't mean I haven't been digging your palace output. A lot of the more recent subjects were things I'm only vaguely aware of, UFO, or things I watched as a kid, but I've no real strong memories of one way or another, TJ Hooker. But no matter, I continue to enjoy the show no matter what you discuss. In other words, I would listen to you read a phone book, if those things even still exist. Well, you just heard me read an extract from a novel, so it's probably the same thing. Not that I'm comparing the Ashes of Eden to the phone book, by any means. But rather than read a non-existing phone book, I would rather hear you talk about The Amazing Spider-Man. I love these episodes, as I have stated before, and this time you actually came upon one of the comics I own, Amazing Spider-Man issue 77, my earliest issue of that title in my collection. I remember being confused by who did what on the art chores in and around these issues, but hey, it looked great, so who cares, right? I do agree Mooney is often overlooked, 
Most people just remember his long run on Supergirl and dismiss his other contributions to comics. But I fondly recall his time drawing Peter Parker, the spectacular Spider-Man in the 80s. So it was nice to see him here when I discovered this issue in the bins a decade or so later. I wish Marvel had established some kind of super strength on the Kingpin's part, because honestly I never bought him being able to be more than just a minor inconvenience to Spider-Man otherwise. It's always annoyed me. It even took me out of Into the Spider-Verse for a bit, until I told myself this Kingpin must have super strength. I never knew how Silvermane came back, so I appreciate the info, but man, that does sound awful. Definitely a case where every writer following should have looked elsewhere for a character to revive. Anyhow, great show as always, and thanks for running the promo for House of Frankenstein series on Supermates over on the Fire and Water podcast network. Speaking of which, Nathaniel isn't the only one who knows how to plug. Take care, Chris. Well, thank you very much, Chris. Lovely to hear from you. Uh, there's still a couple more in the bag, a couple of emails, but again, I've got an elsewhere to be, so I'm going to have to knock it on the head there. But if you wish to email me, heykidscomics at virginmedia.com is probably the way to go and uh, let me know what you think of this or any of the other topics covered on the show everything's gonna be fine see you next time bye bye